0: A few weeks ago, I played a video of Arter, and, and that's not a misspelling. He, he's from Poland. His name is Arter Palowski. He is a pastor in Calgary, Alberta. You remember it was the video. In fact, that's a shot from that video where the, the authorities invaded his church and tried to shut him down uh, while they were uh, celebrating uh, Easter. Called him Gestapo and Nazis and all that. Well, they left, but they came back and they tried to do it a second time, and he ran them off again. Well, unfortunately, on May the 8th, right after church, he and his brother Dawood were leaving church and on a freeway there in Calgary, he was arrested and his brother along with him. And so this is just a little short 54-second video, but I want you to see the kind of world that we're living in today and just think about the fact that they're just barely north of us. This could be uh, coming attractions.
1: Hello friends, this is Pastor Arthur Poloski. If you're watching this video, that means they have successfully arrested me and I am in jail. If you would like to support me, if you would like to support Rebel News and the legal team that is trying their best to get me out of this trouble, please go to SaveArthur.com. Please donate, please help, help me, help my family, help my wife and my children to get me out of this horrible illegal situation, please go to SaveArthur.com and get me out of this if you can.
0: Now, the reason why I think that's so important is because I believe that if we continue to stay where we are as a culture, this is coming to North America. It's just a matter of time here in America itself. Here's an article uh, published on the DailyWire.com website. This is the title of the article. I would encourage you to go read that article this afternoon. In that article embedded in it, there is about a 19-minute interview where Pastor Pulowski tells what he was treated like the two days because the only thing he was arrested for was having church. And under this lockdown in Canada, uh, he's breaking the law. And so they uh, they shoved him in jail. He was actually kept in jail for two days. They didn't let him out until Monday night, May the 10th, at 10 o'clock that night treated uh, miserably at times, and I, I just think it's, it's worth our seeing. Uh, according to Fox News, one of the bystanders that was watching this arrest, right out in the middle of the freeway, as you could see, when it had been raining, uh, said this, shame on you guys. This is not communist China. Don't you have family and kids? Now, they're saying this to the authorities. Whatever happened to, and apparently this is a a phrase or a slogan that's official in Canada. Whatever happened to Canada, God keep our land glorious and free. So, land of the free, home of the brave could very well be next. This is why the church in America better wise up, we better pray up, and we better stand up and speak up. Or this is coming our way as well. And I just wanted you to see that because it's, it's hard to believe that we're living in a time when, when you watch this happening. This is not happening in Poland. This isn't happening in, the, happening in the former Soviet Union, guys. This is happening in Canada. You say, well, I don't know about this happening in America. Well, you, you know that just a few months ago, they threatened John MacArthur with prison time. Because he wouldn't shut his church down there in Southern California, the pastor who I will uh, be speaking, the black robe again, his church in Baton Rouge, he's been arrested thirty-three times, and his crime won't shut his church down. As Pam and I pulled in there the first time, we saw this big banner on his big church marquee. It said, "The church that never closes," and I thought that was that was pretty good. But he's been arrested. Under house arrest, at one of those times, he couldn't even cross the threshold of his front door. So his church members came and lined the sidewalk leading to their church. And he walked to church to preach that day, surrounded by his people. And he told the authorities, when I'm through preaching, you can come arrest me. I'll go sit down on the front pew. And that's exactly what he did. Unfortunately, they couldn't come because they got involved in a shootout across town with a real bad guy and couldn't be there. So he didn't get arrested that particular Sunday. But that's in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. That's how fast this can happen. Well, I want to shift gears here, and I want to, uh, I want to preach a message today that I've preached over the years, and it's one that, that I believe is maybe one of the most critical messages that the American church needs to hear today. I never teach a lesson on this or preach on this subject without fear and trembling myself. In preparing for a sermon like this, I always kind of go back through and take the test for me. And sometimes I don't uh, come out as well as I wish I did. But today I want to preach this message entitled, Pass or Fail, Can Your Salvation Stand the Test? I am convinced that the church across America is filled with people who think they're going to heaven who are going to end up in hell. Now this church may be a little bit different in that it has had years of strong biblical teaching and preaching. So our percentage of people who are not truly saved but have churchianity instead of Christianity may be lower. But I'll bet you there are people in this church, maybe even some in this room today, who if they died right now, they'd be so surprised to find out that they really were not saved. You say, well, Dan, are you trying to make it so hard that people cannot be saved? Oh, my goodness, no. In fact, coming to Christ in one way is one of the easiest things you could ever do because Christ did all the work. He paid the price on the cross. But at the same time, denying self and surrendering to the Lordship of Christ is not an easy thing. And therefore, we find all kinds of ways to bypass real salvation. There are people in church for all kinds of reasons. Maybe they grew up in church and they've just grown to like the church world. It's part of their routine. And so they're in church and they think they're a Christian because of that. Maybe, maybe as a, a, a youngster in vacation Bible school or maybe as a teen at uh, some youth camp somewhere, there was a moving message by an evangelist and they came forward and they, they prayed. Maybe it was their friends that went forward and they went along with them. I've had many over the years tell me, you know, I, I went forward with my friend that night, but I didn't receive Christ. I just went because they did. Maybe it's it's someone who was an adult and they were sitting in an evangelistic service or a revival and they got swept up in the emotion and they, they knew they were sinners. And so they came forward and they cried a few tears and filled out a card and baptized, joined the church. And yet they're trusting in that. Some, I believe, just like the intellectual... Uh, challenge of of debating the Bible back and forth and maybe you're a big fan of apologetics and you're really into defending the authority of Scripture. But that doesn't mean that you are a believer. Maybe you're trying really hard and and you want to live a, a good life. Well, I commend you for that. But that doesn't make you a Christian. As Paul preached last Sunday... No matter how hard you try and no matter how well you may do, you will find that you have still sinned and fallen short of God's standard. Oh, it's easy enough to compare yourself to someone who's not as good as you. You find a lot of people in this world who are not nearly as kind maybe or as giving or as Uh, law-abiding or just civil in their temperament. You can find a lot of people who may not be as good at that as you are. And so you really look good when you compare yourself to them. But what do you look like when you compare yourself to God's perfect standard? I don't measure up. And unfortunately, it's just not within man's spiritual dna to think about this normally because we say well you know i don't want to make people doubt their salvation well i don't either and that's not the purpose of this message today i'm not trying to get you to doubt your salvation but i will tell you this if i can i will because if you can doubt your salvation you probably should All through the years that I've been in the ministry, I've had people come to me and say, Dan, I'm just not sure that I'm a Christian. You know what I automatically assume then? They aren't. Now, in the end, I don't know. But if someone is doubting their salvation, I would much rather err on the side of safety, on the side of redemption, than on, oh, you're okay. Don't you worry about that. And what makes it even worse is today... Messages like this will not be heard from the majority of pulpits across America. And I'm talking in Baptist churches. Forget about all the other denominations. They're preaching a God of just all-inclusive love and, you know, the Lord loves us all. Well, He does love us all. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. In fact, I'm working on a sermon right now uh, entitled, God Will Not Spare Them. So I don't want to get too far off into that today. But God does love us. But this message of love and everybody's wonderful. And, of course, some of the guys have gone off the deep end. People like Rob Bell who now are preaching the doctrine that everybody's saved. Everybody's going to heaven. The love of God is so broad. There's so many people who are off into the grace movement. And thank God for grace. And I want to relish God's grace But at the same time that we're experiencing God's grace, we cannot allow ourselves to become a disgrace to grace. So this is a a very pivotal message. Not because I'm delivering it. Uh, It's just because the, 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 the content is so important. Many of you probably have followed the ministry in past years of Ravi Zacharias. Ravi died last May. There had been those who had come out and had uh, accused him of improper conduct, especially with certain women. And he had always just brushed it off and had been able to tell his ministry board, well, you know, that she's just a kook. Uh, no, she's just tr- trying to get money and all that. Well, when he died, others surfaced and some that had made accusations before. And so his ministry board decided that it was time to find out. And so they hired an, an investigation agency very reputable group, and they started doing research. The report was actually posted publicly by the ministry board once they received it. And the agency said, although there were many other things we could have chased down, and we believe there's a lot of evidence out there, we have fulfilled the request of the Ravi Zacharias ministry, and they actually gave conclusive proof that the accusations were true. And as it turns out, for years... Ravi Zacharias, who had been known as a biblical apologetics guy. I used to listen to him all the time. He would make these brilliant arguments for God and for the Bible. He would go to college campuses and everywhere else. And yet when I was, when I was caused to think about it, I never really heard him refer to Scripture very much, if ever. I never heard him make biblical arguments, just these arguments of philosophy. And although there's nothing wrong with talking philosophy, it turns out that he had been living a dual lifestyle and had women all around the world. And he was having these sexual liaisons with these women for years. Some of them he was paying off so they would be silent. And all of this came out in this study. It's, it's shocking. It's, it's, it's terrifying. And so, when I heard about this, I was shaken. Not because a man like that could fall, or a man like that could live this dual lifestyle. My question was, how could he do that? And then I had to ask myself, well, what about you, Dan? And it brought to mind this very, very powerful and yet terrifying passage of Scripture. Where Jesus talked about that at the judgment. Matthew chapter 7. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. But he says, just because they say that to me. Not every one of them will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we have prophesied in your name. That means they've preached. Cast out demons in your name. Done many wonders in your name. Jesus never says, no, you didn't. Leading me to believe that in many of those cases, they had done those things. Now, these are the things we'd normally characterize as highly spiritual people. Listen to what he says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Notice he doesn't say, well, you used to do those things, but now you're away from me and I don't know you. He says, no, I never knew you. These people were never saved. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, right after the, the Ravi uh, revelations, there was a conference at, at um, Grace Community Church in Southern California where John MacArthur is the pastor. And they were doing a panel Q&A like they always do. And he had on the panel Abner Chow, who is the, well, at that time was the interim president of the Masters University. And I want to play for you about a three-and-a-half-minute clip here of where John MacArthur asks Dr. Chow to respond to the Ravi Zacharias thing, and then John at the very end adds a few comments. But I think it's worth your, your watching uh, as we begin to think about this whole question of testing your own salvation.
1: Right now, all over the media, everywhere across the world, is the story of Ravi Zacharias. And you all probably have seen that, a Christian apologist for decades and decades. Uh, and all of a sudden, it's discovered toward the end of his life that he's having all these sexual liaisons. And it turns out that it's, it's gone on for years and years and years. And the question keeps coming up, can a Christian behave like that? Um, is, that is that possible at that level, at that depth, uh, on that sort of long-range kind of experience? Or do we have a right to question the, the, the salvation of someone like that?
2: If Ravi was alive, let's do it this way. And we know he's not. But if there was a person like him alive, living in that pattern of sin, not fighting against it. We have no evidence to know if he was fighting against it. We have evidence to the contrary. So you have someone who's unrepentant. And they're doing these things and they come to you. Would you say... Without question, you are a Christian. Would you say that to somebody like that? The answer probably would be, no, I would go to them and do exactly what <clears throat> was prayed this morning, which is to make sure we're in the faith. Yes, you would challenge that person, wouldn't you? You would read them First John, maybe several times, and say, are you in the faith? And although we don't know what is in a person's heart, even to the last second of their breath on this earth... Nevertheless, the fruit speaks, and I think that, is, that needs to be said, and it's a warning to us, and it's also, and it goes back to the nature and the need for the local church, and for the church to be the church. When we see these problems of somebody not attending church and not being part of the fellowship because they're in some kind of grander ministry, we should raise a red flag because there is nothing in scripture that says you have to preach across the country. There is everything in Scripture that says you need to be in church mm-hmm. when they meet. Mm-hmm. So there is no world or universe in the Bible where it says certain people get an exception mm-hmm. to obeying the Bible. Mm-hmm. There is no category for that. And therefore, these are serious issues, and they should have been raised. And if they were raised, and the church was the church, we could avoid this. And maybe even help somebody repent. That might have been a Christian. Just to, to add to the that, that answer...
1: In order to live that way, when you're a high-profile preacher, you have to be sinning in multiple categories to cover that. Yeah. You've got to be lying about where you were, what you did, who you talked to. You've got to fabricate lies at a complex level with all the people who are around you, with all the people you're, you're going to someplace, and you've got to You've got to hide your life from them. You, you've got to lie about the past and where you were, who you talked to. Oops. Oh, no. Secure that. Yeah. What what That's you funny. did. In other words, the machinations around that sin are massive. Yeah. And that kind of fabrication, living at that level of creating a false life, it certainly comes into the category of First John. Yes. So, you know, that's why the questions have come up, is, is Ravi in hell? And that's, that's a very fair question, and your answer is right. If you confronted that while he was alive, you would say to him, the Bible is explicit that that kind of life is characteristic of someone who's not going to be in the kingdom of God.
0: That's terrifying, isn't it? I mean, that shakes me to my very core is Ravi Zacharias in hell? I don't know. I don't know. It's not my job to say he will face a righteous judge. But I can tell you this, that his example is just one of many, I believe, that would illustrate to us that even high-profile people are not always what they Claim to be. It's one of the reasons why Dr. Chow brought up the importance of accountability in a local church. You know, these people say, I can be just as good a Christian out of church as you can in. Well, that's like saying, I'm just as good a mechanic with no tools and no garage as those guys that have all the tools and all the garages. I mean, that's just nuts. Pilots will eventually fly airplanes. Engineers will eventually drive trains. Doctors will eventually treat their patients. The church is so central to whether or not we are held accountable for our own Christian walk. So the Bible clearly says that we are to test the genuineness of our salvation. It's without debate. Second Corinthians chapter 13. Now a little backdrop here. This is at least the second letter. Some believe the third letter that Paul wrote to this church. He had spent some two years there ministering to these people. So these people at Corinth had been under the direct ministry of the apostle Paul. That writes over half of the New Testament. Now you would think if there's any church where people would be true blue... It would be at Corinth, right? And yet if you read 1 Corinthians, you get it pretty quick that there are a lot of carnal Christians, if not fake Christians, in that congregation. And I'm sure that that grieved Paul. But listen to what he says to this group. He says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? I mean, don't you even know your own heart, he says? Unless indeed you fail the test. I fear that there are some that have heard me today in this building or online or who will listen later who will fail the test. And this is a scary thing. It causes me, as I said a while ago, to back up and look at my own life, not because I want to doubt my salvation, but this is serious here. We're talking about eternity. Now, there are some, of course, that claim to be Christian because they've heard enough about hell that they don't want to go there. So they get the kind of the equivalent of fire insurance so they can die and not go to hell. There are others on the opposite who've heard about heaven and they know about God's kingdom. They don't want to miss that. But when it comes to devotion to Jesus, surrendering to the Lordship of Christ, trying to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord, they're not motivated by that. They're in every scandal that happens in the church, every squabble, every disagreement. Their ears are always open to a discordant note. Every discouraging word they hear. And I believe this is why a church often is a battlefield where there are casualties left and right because it's filled sometimes with unsaved members. Now I guess the question would first come. Well can any of us know whether or not we're truly saved? Well the answer to that is yes. First John 5.13 says this. These things I have written to you. Who believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may know that you have eternal life. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now remember believe doesn't just mean intellectual assent. It means heart trust. Like what you're doing to that chair that you're sitting in. You're trusting that chair to hold you up. You entrust yourself to Christ. Not as a spare tire, not as fire insurance, not as a all paid uh, vacation in God's kingdom ticket for his eternal cruise but because you realize that you're a wretched sinner and without God's grace you're forever lost and you want to experience the presence and the power of God in your life. And there's a big difference. So yes, we can know that we are saved. Well, then a second question follows, can we know for sure if someone else is really saved? Well, the answer to that is yes. In fact, in a very famous chapter in the book of Matthew these days, Matthew chapter 7 Jesus clearly says in verses 16 through 20 that the way you know what kind of a tree it is that you're looking at is by the fruit it bears. So if a tree has oranges on it, you can easily conclude that's an orange tree. This tree has apples. Well, that's an apple tree. This one has cherries. That's a cherry tree. It's very easy. And so a person who's truly born again is going to show it. All through the years of ministry... I've had people come up to me and say, Dan, I, I've, I've got a, a cousin Vinny or a nephew or I've got a son or a grandson. And, you know, they claim to be a Christian. I remember when they were baptized. But, you know, they're good for nothing and live like a, like a heathen. But they say they're a Christian. Dan, are they really saved? No. No, they are not saved. You look at that tree. You look at its fruit. And, you know, now I'm not God. Please understand I don't go around trying to pass judgment on people saying, well, I think they're saved and I think they're not, although I'm pretty sure he's not. But anyway, you know, not saved. Not... It's not that kind of thing. Oh, you can't pass that up. Terry, you got to do something like that. you got it. So it's not like I'm saying that we ought to declare ourselves the ultimate judge. And, of course, then that brings up the question of, well, isn't it judgmental? To question someone's salvation? Did you know that John three sixteen used to be the most often quoted verse, the most well known verse on college campuses? Do you know what the most well known verse is today on American college campuses? It's Matthew seven one: Judge not, lest you be judged. Now I know what that passage teaches, and it's not teaching that we shouldn't try to figure out where we are, or where our family members, or our friends are spiritually. In fact, if you read the whole context, what Jesus is condemning is judgmentalism. He's not condemning godly judgments. In fact, to get here today, and from the moment you woke up, you've already made numerous judgments. You can't live life without making judgments. When it comes to a spiritual level, Jesus says in John 7, 24, Don't judge based on the appearance. Don't try to read the book by its cover. But what do you do? Judge righteous judgment. Notice, He's telling you, judge righteously. We can't play God. We don't know men and women's hearts. But we also know what God's Word says. And we know what truth is. And so we can know. So if we go to the chalkboard today, there are a number of things that I would like to put before you as what I would call faith tests. Now the Bible is very clear and offers numerous faith salvation tests, but 1 John is the classic. 1 John is, is just kind of a faith test book. And I want to throw out to you today some faith tests that you might want to write down and apply to yourself, and then for people you care about, not because you're trying to judge them, you care about them, and you want them to know the Lord, that you can apply to them. Faith test number one, what I simply call the fellowship walking test. What is that? Well, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with Him, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If someone tells me that they're a mechanic, but they can't fix my vehicle because they don't know a thing about it, then I'm going to conclude they're not a mechanic. If someone tells me that they can really run fast, but then I can outrun them, I'm going to conclude they're not a fast runner. I mean, ultimately, if a person is walking in darkness, they cannot be a Christian they cannot be a Christian. Alright? So, this is what is called the faith walking test. Are they... I mean, excuse me, the fellowship walking test. Are they in fellowship with God? Do they show it by the way they walk? Not just by the way they talk, but the way they walk. Second faith test, what I call the downplay sin test. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 10 Verse 9 in between there is if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. But in verses 8 and 10, John warns us if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If We say that we have not sin, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. Now you say, well, Dan, I don't know anybody who would say that they've never done anything wrong. Oh, there are lots of people who will tell you they've done some wrong things. But it's one thing to say I've been wrong. It's another thing to say I have sinned. Now here's the difference. Wrong is something I might do to someone else or I'm just incorrect. Sin is against God. And there's a big difference there. When David was praying his prayer of repentance as recorded in Psalm 51, he said, God, against you I have sinned. Now obviously he had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against all of Israel. But he said, all of that pales in comparison to the fact that I've sinned against you. Do you admit that you have sinned? Meaning then that you know the consequences and you accept your own wretchedness spiritually. Faith test number three, the obedience test. You'll find this taught throughout scripture. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But in 1 John chapter 2 verse 4 and then chapter 5 verses 2 and 3. He says, He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. By the way, you notice this refrain, is a liar, truth not in him. By this we know, 5 verse 2, that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. That's three times there. Keep his commandments. Now, this is not to say that we can earn salvation by doing good. We could never do enough good. As Paul clearly taught last week, no matter how good you may be, you will always fall short of God's goodness and His standard. And so will I. But if I am a truly born again believer and God's spirit has come to live in me, I'm going to be endeavoring to obey God and even though in my own flesh I will sometimes disobey God or at least not obey God fully, which is ultimately disobedience, I will have as my heart's desire and not just my heart's desire, but I will be living out obedience as best as I possibly can. Now, if that is not true of a person, they're not a Christian. They're simply not a Christian. You say, well, what about David? I mean, King David, why, he sinned? Well, yes, he did. He committed a horrible sin. And God judged him for that. But if you will remember, it was a very short period of time between his failure and his... Repentance. And it cost him for the rest of his life. God said, this child is going to die. He sought the Lord. The child died anyway. But then God said another thing. He said, the sword will never depart from your house, David. And his own son, Absalom, led a coup against him. And it was David's own commanding general that killed his son, Absalom. And as David cried out, Absalom, Absalom, my son, Absalom... I'll bet you his mind raced back to his own sin and he remembered the words of the prophet, the sword will never depart from your house, David, which probably made that even all the more bitter in his own life. Don't tell me that Christians can do anything they want to do. The fourth test, the hate your brother test. First 1 John chapter 2, verse 11, and then chapter 4, verse 20, he says, if you hate your brother, then you're in darkness and you walk in darkness and you do not know where you're going because darkness has blinded your eyes. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. There it is again, a liar. See, when someone tells me that they're a Christian, but they hate somebody's guts, they're not a Christian. You say, but they did me wrong. Well, it's one thing to be offended. It's one thing to be estranged. It's another thing to be filled with hatred. This is why Jesus said that if you hate your brother and you pronounce God's judgment, that he's outside of God's uh, saving grace, then you are in danger of hell fire. He wasn't saying that you can't be offended and have hard feelings. He's saying if your heart is filled with hate, you cannot know the God who is all love. You just cannot, unless you hate what God hates. The fifth test, the love the world test, this ought to be straightforward. 1 John 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This doesn't mean you can't love to hunt. This doesn't mean that you can't love to paint, or love to water ski, or snow ski, or you love your family. That's not what that means. What that means is, is that if your heart is all about this, your heart is here, your treasure is here, and you conform to what this world says, you cannot be God's child. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus says. Love the world test. The sixth test is what I call the confession that Jesus is the Christ test. 1 John chapter 2, verse 22 Who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. And then in chapter 4, verses 3 and 15, Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Now, by the way, this doesn't just mean saying the words. To confess means you agree with. To confess that Jesus is the Christ means that you have responded appropriately. I mean, the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess someday, right? But that doesn't mean that all of them will be saved. They are simply bowing to the Lord. They are simply confessing what is true. But that doesn't mean they agree with it. It just simply means that they are assenting to what is fact. Even though they themselves are lost. So to confess Christ means that you have agreed with God that Jesus is the Christ. And you have received him and surrendered yourself to him accordingly as everyone will eventually. Have you ever thought of this? Even Satan will bow his knee and confess. But that doesn't mean he's going to be saved. Seventh test the sin is a lifestyle test some of these tests overlap slightly and yet they're unique enough that i think they're distinct first john chapter 3 verses 8 and 9 he who sins is of the devil for the devil has sinned from the beginning for this purpose the son of god was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil whoever has been born of god does not sin for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he's been born of god you say dan you don't think that a christian can have a bad thought or say something Uh, without thinking or get angry when they shouldn't. No, I'm not saying that at all. The Bible teaches that we believers struggle with the flesh. What this is talking about is living a life dominated by sin. Sin is your calling card. Sin is your Lord and Master. Remember, back to you cannot serve two masters. If Cousin Vinny lives a life dominated by sin, he's not a Christian. He cannot be according to the sin as a lifestyle test. You also look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Now Paul talks over and over to the Corinthian Christians. These are Christians that they shouldn't be so carnal. They shouldn't be arguing with one another. And yet they were Christians. He rebukes them for the way they carried on at the Lord's Supper, and he says some of them have died prematurely because of their lack of reverence for the Lord's Supper, and yet he doesn't say they're burning in hell. It is possible for Christians to sin. This is not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about some sin in the course of life. He's talking about a life of sin. You just simply do not do that. Number eight, the characterized by love test. In 1 John 4, verse 16, John says, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. The opposite would also be true. If you do not have the love of God in you, you're not a believer doesn't mean that you're always doing everything that's right. It doesn't mean that you always have the right attitude toward people. But it does mean that you're ultimately driven by the love of God that has come into your life and revealed God to you and ultimately has changed you so you can begin to do that which you'd never be able to do on your own. Faith test number nine. The active faith test. 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 says... Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. You might write down beside that the book of James. Because the entire book of James is all about faith in action. So here's the deal. It's one thing to talk about your faith. It's another thing to walk your faith. Now, again, we cannot be confused. The Bible does not say that because you do enough good deeds, then you're saved. But the Bible clearly says that if you're saved, you will do good deeds. So, Cousin Vinny, again, who doesn't give a lick about the church... He's too busy drinking or doing drugs and cussing and fighting with his wife or his girlfriend. He beats his kids and all this kind of stuff. Or he, he never wants to be about God. I mean, you know, he, he's a decent enough guy in that he's not going to try to burn down a church or rob a bank or anything like that. But, he's, uh, but he was, I was there when he was saved. You were there when he did something, but you weren't there when he was saved. Because saved people just don't live like that. And then number 10, what I call the hearing God test. 1 John 4, 6. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now notice John said, hears us. What do you think he's talking about? This. hears us. Us meaning the apostles writing what we call the New Testament. And then of course, Moses through the prophets in the old that Jesus constantly quoted from, Paul quoted from, and that Jesus said, if you search the Old Testament, you'll find me. He's not talking about somebody who sticks their finger in the wind and says, I think God is saying that. I must have heard from God. No, he's not talking about that. He's talking about those who will read what God has said and heeds it. For those who say, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to do that, and I'm not going to do this, and I'm saved, but I ain't going to be baptized, or, uh, you know, I'm going to go to church, but I'm not going to tithe, or I'm not going to give offering. Well, I question whether or not that person is saved. Not because we want their money, or we want their number on another baptism accomplished. It isn't that at all. When a person is changed in their heart, they are changed. Okay, so then to wrap it all up, I want to give you a little, what I've always called a salvation questionnaire. It's seven questions that you can ask yourself or about someone else to see if not, whether or not they're a Christian. Question number one, was there a time in my life when I remember giving my life to Christ? I mean, is there a time? You say, well, Dan, I I, I was young. Well, so was I. I was eight. I don't remember the date, but I can tell you this. I can take you to the place. I can tell you the story. I can show you the garden that my grandfather plowed that I was walking up and down praying. I mean, I can tell you the whole deal. It was in the summer. i just an eight-year-old kid, and we didn't keep up with dates, especially when we're out of school and Christmas isn't close. I mean, we just didn't watch the calendar. But I had a good friend who was asked one time, if he was a Christian, and he said, well, yes. They said, well, tell us about it. And he said, well, I can't remember. What? Now, let me ask you, men... How well do you think that would work if someone at town walked up to you and said, Hey, it's good to see you. Is that your wife? You said, I'm I'm not sure. I don't know. In a few days, those eyes will be able to open again, and you'll learn not to say that ever again. If someone asks you, did you graduate high school here in Edmond? Well, yeah, no, I I don't have any idea. Well, did you go to college? Well, I think I might have. Well, what did you study? I don't know. Did you graduate? Maybe. I mean, would we accept answers to questions like that from anybody? We'd say they're an imbecile and just get out of my life. And yet when it comes to salvation, we'll accept those answers. Are you saved? Well, I think. Maybe I hope. Why in the world would we accept it over the most important question in life? Question number two. Did this experience have a lasting impact? Now, here's why I asked that question. The Bible says if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Old things have passed away. If you could get saved and then in just a little while live like you were living, you're not saved. You're a new creation. doesn't mean you're perfect. In God's eyes, you are. But it does mean that you are different and you cannot live the same way. So you ask yourself the question, okay, when I was a kid, I went forward. Okay, did it have a lasting impact? You say, well, you know, four or five months. No, 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 no. I mean, up until today. See, I'll tell you, when I was an eight-year-old kid... My life has been changed ever since. I've never been the same. 1 John 2.19 tells us the same thing. A lot of people look like they're Christians and all of a sudden they disappear. Well, John says, well, they went out from us because they weren't of us. If they'd have been of us, they'd have stuck with us. In other words, those who are truly saved will stay saved. And if they go out, if it's just a passing phase, that's all it was. It really was a passing phase. Question number three on the questionnaire. Does the Holy Spirit give me assurance and peace? You say, well, I, 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 how, do you, how do you say that? Well, Romans eight sixteen, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Do you down in the core of your heart, when you get past all the emotions and all the circumstances, do you in the core of your heart know that you know that you're a born-again child of God because you have confessed with Jesus with your mouth, you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you said, Lord Jesus, come into my heart, and you weren't playing games. Well, then the Holy Spirit will comfort you and say, okay, look, you're you're mine. There will be these moments when you will know. Question number four, how do I feel about sin? Now, here's what I mean by that. Do I live as close to the world as I can? Can I sin and get away with it? First of all, no, you can't sin and get away with it. The Bible says, what a man sows, he reaps. But here's what I mean. You claim to be a Christian, but you live just as worldly as you possibly can and still call yourself a Christian. You say, now why in the world would anybody want to do that? Well, there's lots of people that do that. And then they're the ones who folks are asking, well, do you think old Joe's a Christian? Will you think old Mary Ann's a Christian? No. No. If you try to live as worldly as you can, and if you can sin and it not convict you, you're not a Christian. Let me tell you what happens in the life of a believer when they disobey God. They are crushed. And they fall to their knees and in grief say, God, forgive me for what I did. Holy Spirit, forgive me for grieving you. God, help me to be who and what you want me to be. And if we do not do that, then James says friendship with the world is enmity with God. He tells us how in the world could we be a friend of the world and a friend of God. You look at your reflection in a mirror and you walk off and forget what you look like. If we have fellowship with Him but walk in darkness, we're not saved. Question number five, we're almost there. Do I love the things of God, Bible, prayer, and worship, and prove it by the priority I give them in my life? See, it's one thing to say, oh, yes, oh, I love God's Word. Oh, yes. Prayer is powerful. Oh, I love to worship. Okay, prove it. Prove it. Do those have a priority in your life? Peter says that like a little baby, you're going to want the Word of God because it's like milk to a baby. If you don't, you're not a Christian. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't have lulls in your life. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those things just aren't important to you. You go to church when you have to. Well, then you're not a Christian. Number six, do I love the people of God and prove it by the priority I give them in my life? Notice once again the priority. These people say, well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Well, you don't have to take a bath either, but it feels good, right? So here's the deal. You and I, if we're children of God, want to be with the children of God. And Hebrews 10, 25 says the children of God gather on the first day of the week, at least, maybe more. But certainly on the first day of the week, does that have a priority in your life? If it doesn't, you're not a Christian. I'm just telling you, you're not. And then the seventh question, am I ashamed of Christ when I'm around others, especially unbelievers, or do I boldly... Show and share my faith. Now, this does not mean that you grab the waitress by the apron strings and drag her over to your table and almost get her fired and embarrass her while you try to force-feed the gospel to her. I've seen guys do that to get another notch on their evangelism gun, and I'm offended at that. Now, if your waitress comes up to you and she's bawling crocodile tears, you say, honey, what's the matter? She says, my life's coming apart. Okay, well, that might be a good time to say, hey, Jesus can help that. But this doesn't mean that you're the gospel gorilla and you just you hide in the bushes and you see some unsuspecting sinner and boom, you pounce on them. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about you want people to know you're Christ and you want them to know that you're His follower. You're not ashamed of Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're standing next to Joe Biden or you're standing next to the town drunk. It doesn't matter or a, a, a Catholic priest... Or Paul Blair. It doesn't matter. Well, he's not in that same crowd. I'm just saying. You're not ashamed. Or do you find yourself kind of whispering, eh, i Christmas. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed, Paul says, of the gospel of Christ. And remember Jesus said in Luke 9, if you're ashamed of me before men... I'll be ashamed of you. So then, how do you do on the test? You pass or fail? Friends, I'm telling you, this is critical. We better make sure. I close with this verse. Psalm 107.3 says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. It is time for us to know so. It is time for you to know that cousin Vinny or sister Sally cannot be saved and live like a devil because scripture says it's just impossible it is time for us to get dead serious so here's my question to you do you think if you sat down and you really went through these ten tests very quickly and then you ask yourself those six questions questions—or excuse me seven questions do you think you'd pass I mean honestly you say well Dan how many of those seven questions can you miss and still be a Christian none But if you miss more than one, you're not a Christian. Not because I said it. So I'm telling you, if you question your salvation, you probably should. Now, let me close with this. You say, well, Dan, don't Christians sometimes kind of, of course we do. Of course we do. I'm not talking about momentary, I'm talking about years you've doubted your salvation. Well, there's a reason for that. That's probably the Spirit of God saying you're not a Christian. So settle it. You say, well, won't God get mad if I really am a Christian, but I'm doubting it, and I come up there and I say, Lord, would you save me? No, He loves you. He wants to give you assurance.